Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hey, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, guys and gals. Thank you for joining me today. I so look forward to being with you each week and I love podcasting. I love putting together the show for you. And as always, we have a wonderful guest for you today. We have another Marcy on the show. Marcy Pusey. I think I'm saying that right. We are going to be talking about all kinds of topics today. Let's see. We're going to be talking about missionary kids, foster to adopt, some major trauma, which would be your family member being murdered in your home. That's that's pretty traumatic. We're going to be talking about, hey, the parenting bag of tricks that we had up our sleeve not working. (laughs) She has a very interesting and fascinating life, and you are going to love her. I just know it. She's so enthusiastic and passionate about her work and her life and ministry. Let me tell you a little bit about her on her bio. Marcy is mama to four humans and two pop, but she's also tossed pizzas for a pizzeria, acted in a musical, appeared in a few movies, and is a castle exploring buff or nerd, you decide. Marcy is also a certified rehabilitation counselor and certified trauma and resilience practitioner. She is an international two-time TEDx speaker, trauma-informed story coach, publishing consultant, and an award-winning best-selling author of books for children and adults. She's founder of Miramare Ponte Press. Marcy and her team provide coaching, consultation, and publishing services for storytellers of all kinds. And so I am really excited to introduce you to Marcy. So without further ado, here is my conversation with her. Oh, please welcome Marcy Pusey to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me. You are the second Marcy on our show. Can you believe that? Wow. I've actually never heard of any other Marcy's. <laughs> like it's such an, a non-common, uncommon. I'll use the actual word that exists for that. That's a very uncommon name. We're just going to get to get to know you a little bit better. And first we like to do some fun stuff because I talk about some dark topics and, you know, we got to have a little fun, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> so I was reading your, your bio and I'm like, wait, you acted in a musical and some movies? What I did. That like? You know what's so funny is that's in there and most people don't comment on it at all. <laughs> oh, I love musicals, so I have to say something. <laughs> yes, it was a church production, but it was a it was a big production. I mean, and it was called Word on the Street, and it was so much fun. Um, and then, yeah, the producers of movies like a lot of good, well-known Christian movies, the producers of those movies um, and I attended church together. And so as they were just getting going, 
with their lower income beginning <laughs> movies. Yeah. They got to be um, an extra in a couple of their different movies. I think one of them is called Six. Another one is Mercy Streets. I had some friends that were part of the whole production and I'm still connected to the producers who've now gone on. I want to, oh, like maybe um, they're like, uh, what was the one? Mom's Night Out is one of them. Oh, Facing the Giants. Okay, yeah. Facing the Giants is great. Yeah. And I was part of the early productions. It was fun. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend that, um, Kenny Yezek, he was in a lot of soap operas. In fact, he was in Days of Our Lives as Lars England. Okay. And um, he was my martial arts teacher. Wow. He's been in a lot of movies, too. He's been in, well, he was in Broadway, too. He did Cats, and he did 42nd Street, and he did Fame, and a bunch of other shows. Anyway, I'm going to interview him next week. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, such fun connections. So. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Oh, and you know what? I had some friends that were um, missionary friends in Europe who've created, I forgot about these two, who create beautiful, beautiful movies that get sent all around the world. They're independent. um, Gosh, some of them have won independent um, like festival awards. And I've been extras in some of those too. So there's a spattering of them. It was never like on my life agenda to go be in movies, but there's actually a few that I can be spotted in. So sounds like fun. Yeah, it is fun. Now, you have done a lot of traveling, being in a military family, and you lived in Germany for many years. Mm -hmm. What were your favorite places to travel? Uh, I'm such a travel bug. I don't even know if that's an actual thing, but it's what I said. So travel bug, I just love it. I have a wanderlust. I um, loved living in Israel. That was just such a blend of cultures that are so distinct from one another, so different from mine, and yet like this collision of them all in one place. And I just, I love that. I love it. I love it. And I, I, um, I love Europe. I miss the church bells mm-hmm. and the cobblestones and the slower pace of life and mm-hmm. um, the nature. There's just so much. I know that there's parts of America that feel that way too, but where I am in the Central Valley of California, I can access nature, but I have to go, go get it. I have to go drive to it. Whereas in Germany, I lived in a forest, like I can right. up my backyard and I'm in the woods and I miss that rivers running through. And so, um, gosh, just about anywhere in, in Europe, I love castles. So any like place that has castles, I'm usually there. And then I love a good island. Like I love the turquoise waters. I love snorkeling. <laughs> so I'm not listing it. It's hard. It's like, who's your favorite child? Like, where's your favorite place to travel? I don't know if it has water. I love it. Nature. <laughs> I love it. Culture. I love it. Um, yeah, so, and I'm not done. I I think I've been to and or lived in 46 plus countries. Um, and I've only lived in one American state, California. So I'm, I'm working on that. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more to see. I have to say. I know I've been out of the state. I've visited other states. I've only lived in this one. And so, um, it's on my bucket list to live somewhere else too. (laughs) I love to travel too. Um, my husband and I just went to Israel in 2019 for our, our yeah. pilgrimage, and that was life-changing. And I know I heard you say that, you know, France and Paris is beautiful. It's a wonderful place. It, it's different when you live there and other yeah. expats that have said it's a pain in the neck to get anything done. Like, you get it done in the U.S. It's, you know, you try and get paperwork or 
anything like that done in a place like France, it's like, it takes a lot longer. It does. Everyone um, is resting. They're very good at rest, but that does mean things take longer. <laughs> we have also been to Switzerland twice. Mm-hmm. We went to Lucerne. Uh-huh. And we've been to War- Warsaw. We took a tour. I'm a World War II buff. It's a movie, The Pianist. We did that tour. Wow. And I know a lot about World War II, but... Yeah, to be there seeing it. I mean, To be there living, seeing it, yeah. Living there, too, there's still so much that makes... Like, it's still visible in some ways. Um, differently than in the U.S., where not, it didn't happen on our soil. And so it's just sort of this thing that happened over there that's now part of memory. But there, there are still visible and and like almost a muscle memory with with history of that time period and um it's it's kind of a trip to come as an american especially for the first time and look around and be like oh my gosh this is where you know nazi flags hung here i can see the pictures of them and now it's this cute little bustling village but or the memorials there's still like memorials on hills all over the place and um yeah it's it's a fascinating place to live but i do love it yeah, we went to Normandy. I had relatives that fought uh-huh. Normandy Beach, and that was surreal. Yes. But uh, we would love to go to Germany next. So we want to, to go to Strasbourg, and we'd like to go to Germany, and we'd like to do it by train. Yeah. And so if that happens, I'll be calling you for some travel tips. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that would be That's fun. my part of the country. I lived in very close to Basel, Switzerland, but on the German side. And I was, so I was 20 minutes from the Alsace of France and 20 minutes from Switzerland, about four hours from Italy. I could, I could get to 11 countries within four hours, like in any one direction. And I just, that just gets me so excited. (laughs) I just love that so much. Now I'm in, you know, California where I'm relatively trapped by an ocean and then by a mountain range, you know, I'm like, there's no people don't need to leave California very much. I love traveling. So we're going to transition into your story. Can you set the stage for us with what kind of childhood did you have? Yeah, so I was born in Southern California on a military base um, to young parents who were still trying to just figure out their own lives. And I, here comes their baby, like 11 months after they were married. So there wasn't really a lot of time for them to experience each other alone. Um, month two, my mom's pregnant and hormonal and all the things, right? And as I was told, my dad was not a Christian when they got married and my mom was. So there was, there was some of that dynamic that was part of my early upbringing as well. And then my dad left the military gosh, in my first year or two of life. So I actually didn't have the typical like military brat experience of moving around with a deployed dad. Um, but we still moved around a ton because after the military, he, he took on work and kind of hopped from place to place, eventually moving us from Southern California to the Central Valley of California. And then let's see, when I was about four, almost five, my little sister was born. And at the time that she was born, there was a lot of conflict between them. And so I remember being in and out of hotels with my very pregnant mom. Mm -hmm. I remember slamming doors. I picked up an eating disorder around the age of four um, just to kind of process. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one. I won't describe it, but it's not the typical two that we talk about. 
Um, but I just, it was just survival for me. And then they were separated for about three years after my sister was born. And, um, so then I was like in a single parent home for a little bit. And my dad was kind of absent at that time and they couldn't afford a divorce. So he came back around maybe when I was eight or nine, he moved in as a neighbor first in our apartment complex. And then eventually we all lived together again. And so those years also were on welfare, um, relative mm -hmm. poverty, you know, the places that we were living were low income. And I don't, I don't find that as a negative thing. It just was. But when I talk about it, sometimes my mom will feel like, oh, she thinks her childhood was horrible, but it was just my childhood. It's, it's what I knew. But I think in all of those dynamics of young parents trying to figure themselves out, all of this conflict, I just took on the message that the least of a burden I could be, the more value I had. You know, the, le the least amount of trouble I could get in or need, like I would bring food home. Anybody giving away food, I would take it and bring it. So that was one less thing my mom had to buy to provide for me. And she never, I have no cognitive like memory of her ever communicating anything to make me feel mm. that I was a burden. I just picked it up from my environment. I'm, I'm a nine on the Enneagram and we love harmony and peacekeeping. And I think that was just part of what developed me to who I am today is like, okay, what does it mean to be the first child and to take care of this younger sibling and to make sure that we had food when we didn't always know where we were going to have food. So, but then also my mom was very intentional about instilling faith in us as Christians. Oh. And we weren't always in a church, but it mattered to her that I would know what God's word says and um, have access to church at the times that I could. And so, so yeah, there was like richness and wealth in one area as far as like her investment in me spiritually. And um, she was a stay-at-home mom. So there was a lot of like togetherness, but then I still just picked up and carried this message that the least that I cost. You wanted to be invisible. Yeah. I felt like that's what gave me value. Mm, it's really common. It's so sad. It's sad. Like I do cry when I think of that Marcy, like this, even as I say it, I'm like, I feel it. That little girl who, who just didn't know. And my parents would be mortified. Like they would, they would be mortified to hear that them just trying to live their lives and figure it out in that, that I would, I would have picked up this message. Um, but I did. And now that's something that I'm working on and dealing with, not at their blame, but because now, how do I live a healthy version? How do I take the parts of that, that, that serve me and that are strengths? You know, I care for people. I love people. I, there's a level of independence and self-reliance that's healthy that I can do. But then I also now have to, to learn how to rely on others and be interdependent and, mm -hmm. um, trust, trust my healthy friendships that they are safe places where I can be who I am. And, and I'm not going to be abandoned because, because I'm too much or because I'm not enough. I've always had a bit of an anxious energy in my friendships, any kind of relationship, this, this worry that, oh my gosh, they're going to eventually tire of me or figure, or, you know, the fraud piece, even like, oh, there's going to, someday they're going to realize I'm not worth being friends with. And, um, you know, life is hard anyway. And then yeah. people, there's just people all on a journey. And so I do have people in my life who left in hard situations. And I always interpreted that, like it fed the lie. Oh, that's big C because I'm not good enough. And I'm finally at a stage in life because of some of what we'll talk about where I realized like, no, it's not actually me at all. Like I have my responsibility 
for myself in life to be a healthy friend and to, to, yeah, to be a healthy friend and a healthy human. But as far as other people's health, like that's their responsibility. But I always took responsibility for that too. You know, it always was somehow mm-hmm. a reflection of me and my worth. If you know how, how people responded to me and that kind of thing. So I can see the seeds of that in my childhood in a really well-meaning setting. But like now as an adult raising kids, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm still trying to figure out life. And now I'm like responsible for other people too. And I like have such compassion for my parents who were so young. I think they were like 19 and 20 or something when they got married and began having kids. Like, of course they had no idea what they were doing. You know, of course I picked up the messages I did. They had enough capacity to try to heal from their own nuclear families, Mm -hmm. let alone start one and do it the healthiest way. So they're lovely people and I love them and I'm grateful for the life that I had. And just like everybody now I'm on a journey to continue being as healthy and heal and grow as much as I can at the time I'm given. Amen. But I mean, I've known you what a half an hour and I think you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about what, what was your relationship with God at the time? I mean, when did you personally meet God? Yeah. I, in my memory, there was never a moment where I didn't know there was a God. I just didn't always know his name. My mom, like I said, from the beginning, tried to raise me in the church or with biblical understanding, but I just always knew. I always felt him, heard him, experienced him in some way, felt not alone in the ways that I could have. And, you know, I was kind of this little island trying to be invisible, which is very, very lonely. But I I always knew there was someone, capital S, someone that I could lean into and rely on and trust. And I remember being in, it was a kindergarten or preschool. And some little kid walking around asking everyone if they were a Christian. And I, di- I didn't know. I didn't know what that word was. I didn't know what it meant. So I was kind of listening to how other people were answering. And yes, seemed like a popular answer. So when he got to me, I was like, uh-huh, yeah, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and then as soon as he walked out, I asked somebody, like, what's a Christian? You know, oh, someone that believes in God. And I was like, oh, good. Oh, good. That's me. But I just didn't even have language for it is kind of the example in that story is I didn't have the language, but I knew that there was a God who was personal. Um, and then as I got older, that, yeah, that just never went away. And mm-hmm. even to the point where when my own mom and her single parenting, um, or when they got back together, like there's always excuses for why we can't go to church or why we're not connected to faith communities or whatever. I was always committed. Like, nope, wherever we move, I'm going to find that faith community. And I'm going to go. I told a story recently in a different podcast episode about how there was a local church going through with a bus through apartment complexes Mm -hmm. and offering to the community that they could have a ride to church if they needed one. I was so excited. And so, I don't know, I must've been five. It was in the time where my mom was single parenting. So I was like between five and seven. I think on the younger end though. Anyway, next Sunday, I'm so ready. They knock on the door, like the bus is here. Well, my mom's in the bathroom and she's not hurrying. So I'm like, I'll just, I'll get on the, I'll wait for you on the bus. And so I did my little five-year-old self. I went and walked myself onto this neighborhood bus that drove me to church. And I had a great time at church. I don't know what I did, but I know I had a great time, but I came home to a very livid mom. Who's like, you never get on a bus without me. I couldn't go get you. Like we must not have had a car. I don't know. She had no idea where I was. So she was just freaking out at home. But next Sunday, she was ready on time. (laughs) We got on that bus together. She knew I was going with her without her. So I feel like there was always that. There was always this 
desire and hunger in me that from a young age, I was like willing to do the scary things to know more about him. And at times in life that kind of got my parents more involved and more on board as well. But I just, I always knew it just, it was just became a matter of like knowing what to call him. And that's the gist of it. And I'm still on that journey, right? Like 40 years later, I'm still like, he's, he's this mystery. I'm always unraveling in such a beautiful, beautiful way. And I'll, I, you know, I'll never arrive there, but I've loved the journey. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, God put a God-shaped vacuum in, in our hearts and. That's exactly it. And. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I've been a Christian since I was 13, but it is definitely a journey in learning more about God and more about myself and how he sees me and it's a uh, it's a wonderful journey it is (laughs) so you you're a writer and how did you start writing in the midst of all of this going on and what was the catalyst for you yeah I have always journaled I guess I could call it or had a diary from young and processed my thoughts and my happenings and my world in that place. And later in life came across a quote by Flannery O'Connor that says something to the effect of, I write so that when I read, when I've written, I understand what I was thinking. I butchered it, but it's to this idea of like, I don't really understand what I'm thinking until I've written it and reread what I've written. Mm -hmm. That is 100% true for me. I feel like so much I'm having to just put it down. And then as I'm putting it down, I get the epiphanies or the understanding or the, the recognition. And then not only am I getting some awareness around it, but it's actually healing at the same time. So, uh, the very first book I published, like professionally published was really kind of just that we were foster parents. We had adopted, we were birthing children and it was hard. And I was coming to that experience as a therapist, as a social worker, as someone who had been in social services a long time. So I felt pretty informed. And yet still, once we began the process of fostering and adopting, um, none of my tools worked in my own home. I've been amazing with other families. (laughs) (laughs) But in my own home, you know, isn't that what they say? Like in my own home, they weren't working. And it kind of took me on this deep dive into trying to understand early trauma, Um, attachment and bonding and the impact of not attaching or bonding, um, the, the, you know, the attachment disorders that come along with that. And in that process decided that it really was hard for more people than just me. And so what had been just sort of my ponderings and my journal became a book, Reclaiming Hope, that was really like me raising my hand saying, anyone else think this is hard? Because when I go to the foster trainings or I look at a poster promoting adoption, it's always like blended, beautiful families running through fields of wildflowers with big smiles on their faces. And they've all, you know, exactly. And I'm like, where's the picture of my family? <laughs> like, you know, with all the stolen things and the lying things and the triangulating and the manipulation and the tears and like all the things like, and the, and the, and the grief you know, there's the kids, we expect them to be grateful that we rescued them. And the reality is every single adoption story has a, has a broken original family. And that has such an impact on the full body of a child, no matter when they were adopted. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you adopted them two seconds after birth. Um, There is a wound there and there is a traumatic event that occurred to that child. And so there's just a lot of mis- 
I don't want to just say like information, but almost like mispromotion, right? Like we just don't, we just don't educate well enough. And so that's what has led me into professional writing is so many times I'm just processing my own experience and then looking around like anyone else, like I can't be the only one. And so I throw these books out into the world and I get a resounding, yes, me too. And so that ended up, you know, where I was really just trying to create a space for healthy conversation where some of it is talking about the hard things like reclaiming hope. The subtitle is overcoming the challenge of parenting foster and adopted children. And, and so many people were just so hungry to hear that they were not alone, that they weren't the sole bad human in the world who'd gone out to foster adopt and really then decided maybe they shouldn't have, you know, but mm-hmm. nobody was saying that because that's so shameful sounding like, Oh my gosh, I might, maybe I regret this or maybe I'm not good enough for this. And now what do I do? And so Writing has always been a place where I can begin to understand myself, but as I got older and began to share it, I learned that it benefited other people too, if for nothing else than to offer community and camaraderie and Mm -hmm. a sense of connection between people also struggling with hard things. Now, you have to tell the story about when you won tickets to the circus, and that was from your writing. It was from my writing, and I was young, yeah. That So I was about eight, I think, and my parents were just, like, I think maybe they were neighbors again at this point. And I went to the Boys and Girls Club regularly after school. I would take my little baby sister with me. They offered a lot of free food, so I'd load her up with gallons of milk and bread and whatever, and I'd get mine and pull us home. And and there was an, uh, one of the visits where they said, okay, we're going to do a persuasive essay contest. And so if you can convince us why you should win tickets to the circus, then you'll win them. And here I am, this little girl, like a trip. If I did all of my chores, then I would get a kid's meal at McDonald's once a month. That was like my big reward. So I'm just, there's some context here. Like yeah, the circus was, might as well have been a trip to Mars. Like my parents had never been to a circus. I had never been, we would never be able to afford something like that. And so I wish I had a copy of that essay because I wrote my little heart out and I don't know what I said, but I wrote my heart out. Other kids, I think I was the last kid to leave. Like I was committed to this persuasive essay. And then I don't know how long it was between that and the, the time that we learned that I won. I won circus tickets for my family. And so I got to take my baby sister and both of my parents to the circus. And that did something in me. Like, wow, there was this power in my pen, so to speak, that I could, with my words, give such a gift to other people. Like I was excited to go to the service, but actually the the bigger gift to me was that I could take my little sister and my parents who were grownups and had never been. Like what a gift I could give as a result of just putting, putting words down and someone liking them. And so I don't, you know, that didn't immediately make me a writer, but I think it was something that I tucked away and kept, I mean, all these years later, I remember, I remember that win because it was such a pivotal moment for me and it just stayed there, but I went and became a therapist instead. I mean, do you remember what exactly you wrote about? Why I should win the tickets. Uh, That was, I remember that was the topic. So it it must've been something like my parents have never been. I want to take my baby sister. We're poor. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So just, you know. I deserve it because, you know, I want to go. <laughs> the circus is I cool. I, wrote. <laughs> I just have this, like, almost like this above body memory. I can almost like see myself, this little girl sitting there like writing, writing, writing. And I remember the room emptying out. I remember grabbing some bread and milk on my way out. I even remember getting home that day and my mom saying, okay, I think we have enough bread for a while. Because <laughs> I just, again, back to that burden piece, like 
the more that I could contribute, the, mm-hmm. then the more worth and value I had. And so even that day, I remember like they had this little bin where any food donations or whatever that were there, we could take them home. And so I loaded up my sister and I and got us home and then learned that I won, which I didn't expect. Um, yeah. And how much could a little you know, eight-year-old friend? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But wow, it's, that's... With me, it's something that showed that there was, that I could give a gift when I would share my words. That is so amazing, and it reminds me of a, a family, a missionary family that I'm friends with in Australia, and they had seven children, and they won tickets to Disney World, wow. and that's kind of the same, along the same lines, is like, you might as well be on Mars, because they, with nine people in the family, they could never afford to go to any kind of amusement park and they were just so thankful and blessed and yeah neat story so you said you went to college Mm -hmm. and became a therapist I did I pursued multiple degrees actually so I pursued social work um, intercultural studies for my undergrad and then my master's was in counseling um So yeah, I really just stayed in this psychology therapy lane and worked in social services for a long time. And then we began to foster and adopt. And then we eventually moved to Germany. Yeah, I got to see your husband, Jeremy, on Uh a TV show that you were guests on. Yeah. So how'd you guys meet? We met in our church through a mutual friend. um, And... He was part of a group of people that I met one day. And so the whole group invited me to go to lunch with them. And then they would regularly meet at his house for Bible study. And so they invited me to that. So I really got to know him well in a group setting with all these new friends that just were so on fire for God and doing such cool things. And um, yeah, it was in there. And And I had never, so at this point, I'm already 20 or 19. And I had never dated anyone. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I was like trying to be so holy. Like I would have loved to have dated someone. I just never had anyone so clearly say, Marcy, I'd like to date you. So I had, I have no experience in my memory of anyone liking me that way or pursuing me in that way. My mom, now that I'm older, is like, oh, Marcy, so-and-so liked you. And so-and-so liked oh. you. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I just, somehow I didn't experience that. And no one was clear enough. So he was my first and to date only relationship that I'd ever had. And we met, yeah, in a church in that group setting. And I loved the getting to know each other in the context of friendship and even in a group because I could see how he interacted with everybody. And we didn't have to have this, like, I don't know, now that I'm- Awkwardness. We haven't gotten there, but now that I'm single again, which is part of the story, um, I've never dated. So now I'm like older trying sort of to date. I mean, I'm not dating, but could <laughs> trying to figure it out and it's so different but I don't even have like how I used to do it to fall on like there's no history so I'm learning that even what I witnessed as a kid is not how it's done now and so I just still long for that that opportunity to join friendship groups and get to know someone but it's really harder at this life stage I find to to um find singles in their 30s and 40s and and connect through friendship everyone just seems to be like let's go on a date let's go on a date like I want to see you in a group of friends first so anyway I just went down a little trail but that's part part of the experience with dating and meeting him was was that I was already older and I had no other experience 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't catch in your interviews that I listened to that you are now single. So No, it's fine. <laughs> sorry if I brought up any bad memories no. or anything, but no, it's not it's it's part of my current story. It's more recent as in the last year and a half. And it's a lot of what you talk about. It was the result of abuse in our home while we were on the mission field, but I didn't know what to call it. Like growing up in the church, I was just told that marriage is hard, but you never end it. And mm -hmm. that women and wives have a lot of responsibility to please their husbands. And if he's not pleased, like do more, <laughs> pray more, believe more, have more sex. We kind of talked about some of that. Like it's my responsibility to keep the household running and happy and to expect that it's hard because all marriage is hard. But that message didn't leave any room for me or distinguish for me hard from abusive hard. And then I learned on the mission field that even when I began to define it or when it first was given a definition, he was the first one to call it abusive, that that, that was really uncomfortable for a lot of Christian leaders. And they didn't like the language of it. They didn't like believing it or understanding it. They certainly didn't know how to support us mm -hmm. and ended up perpetuating abuse and harm. And so at this point, we were sent back to the U.S. very abruptly, ripped my kids out of their school, their home, their lives. They had four weeks to say goodbye to their lives. They were raised there. We were there almost nine years and um, to get help here. But then we were essentially dropped off. We were given like transition pay, but that was the extent of the support and things didn't get better. Um, oh. Yeah. So now I'm in this new club that I didn't really know existed of like partners, Christian partners of intimate partner abuse. Um, that, yeah, I just, it all happened so fast. It was a bit of a spin out. And yet now, now I'm so much more aware of some of the grooming that happens within some like subcultures of Christianity, yeah. not the Bible, not Jesus, not every church. But definitely there was some language and some upbringing inside of the culture that set me up for that. I already had that childhood piece that I talked about of like, oh, I don't want to be a burden and my worth comes from your happiness and your peace. So I already was like a perfect opportunity for someone to exploit that for their gain, subconsciously, consciously, whatever ways. Um, and, then, and then to find myself in a system that didn't know how to support a wife in harm because then the marriage contract was at stake. And that was a bigger concern to our mission on the field with us than my safety or my health. And so then I had to learn like, gosh, how do I coach them while I'm drowning, you know, and how to help me and how do I support my kids and what in the world is even going on? This is not the story I wrote for my life. Like who dropped me off in the wrong book and who wants their book back? Um, so anyway, just to fill in some of that, since you were saying that was kind of new, yeah, that's I, the experience that I'm in. It's really, um, yeah, I don't know what the rest of that sentence is. It's really a lot of things. It's full of grief, but it's been full of healing. Um, I, for the first time in my life, recognize that I have my own worth and value yes. apart from what someone can give me based on what I offer. Never had that. And this whole situation has been part of what's brought me to that understanding. Um, and that in the relationship I was in, there was no space for that, for me to have my own value. Our, our dynamic relied on me not realizing that I had any so that I would continue to fill my role 
of appeasing and pleasing and taking full responsibility for everything. So now I'm, I'm free from that in a sense, but there's still a tremendous amount of grief attached to how that happened, how that learning happened. So if I could ask you, um, your husband is Colombian. Mm-hmm. Now I had dated a Peruvian fellow in college and there was that whole cultural thing with uh, machismo. Is that what you experienced? A lot of cultural stuff or was it most oh. a mix of the church? Yeah, it was a mix of the church and then and both of our dysfunctional Oh, okay. Behavior and view of self, right? So he had his own special childhood experience that that made him the perfect stormy match for me with my value and worth thing. Mm. And so it actually became spiritual abuse as well because scripture was weaponized against me my faith was weaponized against Mm -hmm. me you know and so it was it almost felt less like because because I'm a man and it was like no because you're a Christian wife right and I'm a Christian man but that means you know I have different different responsibilities and I have different needs like your emotional need the Bible doesn't say you really need to do anything with that, but it does say not to withhold sex from your partner, you know, and I'm a man, I'm wired a particular way. And so I deserve that no matter if I'm fulfilling any of your needs or not. Like, and it was all within the church, like not church, um, faith that all those conversations happened within like a faith conversation. And so, um, yeah, I, I honestly looking at it, didn't see it as much as like, as a South American, cultural piece there his mom was um the daughter of german and danish immigrants so he had a really multicultural upbringing i don't know which one had more influence um but i know that's a real thing and that's a challenge that a lot of people face but mine was definitely kind of i'm still going to say weaponized through the lens of faith and scripture yeah As you can tell, we are having a great time, and we're hearing Marcy's story today. We talked for a long time today, and I don't want to cut any of our conversation out because it was so good. So we're going to do a part two of our conversation. So next week, she is going to talk about in detail her experience with fostering to adopt and what were the challenges and some of the parenting skills that she has learned. Also, we're going to hear about some other healing tools and she's going to go into more detail with when her mother-in-law was killed. And she's a great author. She's going to talk about her books and resources for you. I think you're going to enjoy the second half of this interview as much as the first half. So please be with us next week. So until then, God bless. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.